I'll read to you verses 4 through 6. Those of you who are visiting with us, we began uh, working our way through the book of the Revelation last Lord's Day. You're in on the second message. I don't think I'm going get to get to any of the good stuff today, so you, you might have to uh, listen online uh, as we go through this book, but hopefully this will be a blessing to you. Beginning at verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to our God or to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we ask now that You would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive and believe, minds to comprehend and understand the things that you have preserved for us by your Spirit. I pray that you'd give illumination. I pray that you would apply these things. Father, we, we don't want to leave the same way we came. And so I pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. So last Lord's Day, by way of application, I considered you to consider some struggles, issues in life. And I want to, in a way to try to create a segue, I want to take last week's application and use it as this week's introduction. And I want to do that again. I want you to think about that thing, those things in your life that cause you angst or worry or fear because of unknowing uh, things that you know you're going to approach tomorrow morning and you know that as soon as they present themselves, your mind is going to become filled with thoughts, with planning, with maybe even worry, things that are not good. Your mind is unsettled, perhaps apprehensive. In our culture, we would call it stressed. Things that stress you out. And I want to give you some options to pick from. Maybe all of these would apply, but for you it might be a relational issue. There's some, somebody, some person in your life, maybe as close to you as a spouse, maybe a, a little bit further out. They might just be in your extended family, or they might be as distant as a, a co-worker, but that relationship, something in the relationship, something that needs to be said but hasn't been said, something that ought to be addressed but hasn't been addressed, or maybe it has been addressed over and over and over, and the relationship is just kind of edgy. And you know that you're going to have to see that person, talk to that person, be around that person, and it, it, you're already filled with worry and stress about what it's going to be like around that person. A relational issue. Perhaps it's a situational issue. Now, for us in our church here, most of us are young families, and so we're in that place in life where we are mentally busier than we've ever been ever. We thought that we were busy as young single adults trying to figure out how to, you know, cash a check and then spend all of the money at the mall. But now we're trying to juggle marriage 
and children and work and time and juggle all of these things as well as our devotion to the Lord and consecrating time to the Lord. And as soon as we begin to think of that reality, we're just stressed. How am I going to do it? I didn't do very well last week and I can probably assume that this week is, is going to present the same issues. Or maybe it's occupational for you. It's a work situation. Maybe your work is just uncertain. And so you don't know if you're going to have a job next week or two weeks from now or two months from now. Maybe the hours at your job are longer than you expected or maybe they're less than you expected. Something about the 9 to 5 or 6 to 3 or 7 to 4, whatever your hours are, something about that time frame is beginning to spill over outside of that time frame. And so as you drive home, you're already stressed about what happened. As you lay down at night, you're already stressed about what's going to happen the next day. And as you're driving to work, you're getting more and more anxious about what is going to be waiting for you there. That would be an occupational stress. Or maybe it's financial. You might be in that place where you're wondering where the money is going to come from to pay the bills. Now we've got a lot of young uh, mothers with child at the moment, and you're wondering, how am I going to pay for this baby to come out? It's coming out. How am I going to pay for it? Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where there's extra money, and you're a Christian, and so you're wondering in your mind, how do I juggle extra money with prioritizing Christ's kingdom, not my kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and, and dealing with my finances in a way that honors the Lord. And as soon as you begin to think about it, your heart and your mind are filled with struggles, again, stress as we might call it. These types of things affect our minds, and they get to be so bad that it's all we think about. They affect your dealings with other people. So that if it's not a relational issue, maybe it's just financial, but it's on your mind. And as soon as you begin to talk to somebody, you're already pushed over the edge. It's not their fault. It's your fault. But it begins to bleed over. Tensions are high when pressure is applied in life. This, again, begins to spill into your devotional life. And so if you're like me, as soon as you close your eyes to pray... It's, it's like a, a, a slideshow of all of the issues of life. It's just this and this and this and this. You open your eyes, it's gone. You're fine. Close your eyes to pray. This and this and this and this. Or you open the Word of God to read and as soon as you see a word, that immediately goes to some issue in life and you, that fills your mind and that's all you can think about. Or you might be the other type of person who can categorize very easily. And so you're good at setting aside the things of the world for a solid 15 minutes, plowing through a chapter, muttering a three-minute prayer, and then getting that over with, and then boom, you can go right back. And the first step that you take into the world is all of these issues. And if you can sort of step outside of that and you think about your life, it's almost like you're on a rotating chair dealing with issues. This one, this one, this one, this one, all the way back around. When you finish with this one, you're right back to the next one. So that rather than living from paycheck to paycheck, you're, you feel like you're living from issue to issue to issue. You're always dealing with something in life. Always worrying, fearful, stressing, trying to reassess, evaluate, prioritize. We call this anxiety. That's what it's called. An unsettled heart, an unsettled mind with regard to some situation or some circumstance in life. Either because you have refused to do it God's way or 
you are doing it God's way, but you still don't believe that God's way is actually the best way. And that generates what we call anxiety. Now, anxiety is a sin. Anxiety is not God's fault, it's your fault. And I've said before that if you've got so much on your plate that, you, that, that our, your devotional time prioritizing the kingdom of Christ begins to get squeezed out, that's not God's fault. God didn't give you that. You took that and now you're trying to juggle all these balls and God said, I didn't give you all those balls. But it's, it's sinful. It's bad for you. Anxiety is bad for you. Even unbelievers know this. This is why we have prescription drugs for anxiety, depression. Because even unbelievers in their pride will not be found under a bar stool Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock and so they will dignify their self-medication with a prescription. And a lot of Christians do the same thing. We refuse to deal with the sin of anxiety and we just dull our senses with drugs. The issues don't go away. We just can't think about them so clearly and so we feel like we're fine. Now here's my, my, my Joel Osteen-esque quote for the day. This, this might be what everybody needs to hear. But anxiety is not God's will for your life. That's not what He wants. How do I know that? John writes in John Revelation, or Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Not anxiety, not worry, not fear, peace. Now, by way of a, a quick recap, we have John, the last living apostle, writing a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor sometime in the latter part of the first century during a time of increasing difficulty for Christians. Times are getting more and more difficult. And he's writing, bearing witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, recording visual things that he saw revealed to him by an angel who was sent by Christ. And Christ sent this angel to reveal these things to John because God the Father gave this revelation to the angel, or to Christ, to give to the angel, to give to John, so that the servants of God would know God's perspective on their world. And so if you're a Christian, and if you're a part of a church and you've ever been tempted to bend just a little bit to the pagan or religious, even religious pressures around you so that you can make things a little bit easier, then this book is for you. That's exactly the audience to which John writes. And we have in this verse the third explicit reference to a genre. We've already seen that it's apocalyptic based on verse 1 the primary staple of which is to interject into the world that is seen and reveal God's perspective on that world. In other words, to all you down there, it looks like this, but here's what God sees. That's apocalyptic literature. We've also seen in verse 3 that it's prophecy. It is God's Word delivered in such a way that demands its hearers obey or face the consequences. That's prophecy. And then now we see that it is an epistle, a letter like very much of the New Testament. It's an epistle given by Christ to care for His church, to instruct His church, to guide His church, to correct His church in its errors. There are a lot of folks who are in our day really obsessed with getting back to the church in Acts 
As if the church in Acts was the, the pinnacle church. It wasn't. It was the church in infancy. How do we know that? We have a New Testament full of epistles saying, you're doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. And do this and do this and do this and do this. He's Christ maturing His church. And that's exactly what He's doing here. It's an epistle written by Christ to care for His church. And He begins that work of caring for His church with these words. Grace to you and peace. Almost every New Testament epistle contains this greeting. This greeting is so common that most of us, if we're honest, when we're reading an epistle, we skip right over this part. Perhaps even the whole paragraph of the greeting. We skip over it to get to the, the meaty stuff. This greeting is so common that even though we confess that we believe in the inspiration of the words of Scripture, most of us would probably assume that a sermon on the words grace to you and peace would be a little more tedious than is actually necessary and edifying for the church, especially when we've got prostitutes and dragons to get to, right? Let's get to the, get to the good stuff. The problem is that most of those struggles that I described at the beginning, by way of introduction, most of those issues... You have those because you don't understand this phrase. Grace to you and peace. You've skipped right over it your entire life and you go right back into juggling all of these things when God Himself has said, Grace to you and peace. Now let me prove that. Let's look at these words. First, grace. The word chorus is often translated grace can also be translated gift, and very often when we define the word grace, we say unmerited favor. And so we have this picture that grace is God just sitting in His rocking chair, looking down at us, and His heart is just warm. He just likes us. And that's our idea of grace. But remember that grace is an attribute of God. We confess that our God is most gracious. And so it's not simply something God has. Grace is something God is. All that is in God is God. He doesn't have grace. He is grace. And when we walk through this in our confession, I gave you this definition. Grace is that in God which disposes Him toward men in a manner contrary to what they deserve. Now let me unpack that a little bit. Grace is that in God which disposes Him. Not just a disposition He has, it is God disposing Himself, a self-disposing, a self-giving. It's God's giving of God to men contrary to what they deserve. Now, as sinners, we deserve God to be disposed toward us as judge, jury, executioner. But in grace, He's disposed to us contrary to that. Not to destroy, but to strengthen and build. Not to curse, but to bless. Not to condemn, but to justify. All of these are God coming to us in grace. Our culture would like to define the word grace as license or liberty or God looking the other way. And a lot of Christians have memorized one, two passages of Scripture. John 3.16 and I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Which what, what they mean is, God doesn't have any standards for me anymore. I can do what I want to. See, He's gracious. He just sort of ignores the things that I do. But that's not grace. Grace is God's self-giving. 
And because God is never idle, grace is never idle. Grace is always at work. We might say that grace is God at work in us, doing that for us which we have not earned and cannot deserve. Now let me prove that. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Who's working? Well, Paul's working, but it's not just Paul. It's the grace of God with him working. Grace works. Grace is energetic. It's power. So we could say that grace is God's unmerited, powerful self-giving to men, contrary to what we deserve. We also read this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know it, Paul? That, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. We, we know the grace of Christ. How? Because He was up high and He came down low so that we who were low could come up high. That's how we see grace acted out. It's, it's a condescension in God. Amen. It's God's unmerited, condescending, powerful, self-giving to men contrary to what they deserve. Now, hopefully, when I, de- when, when I speak of God condescending, coming down to give Himself for us, to us. Hopefully, your heart is already screaming, just say the name of Jesus. We know you're talking about Christ. Just say Christ. And that's where we see the grace of God ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave us grace in Christ, in a person. John 1.16, from His, that's Christ, from His fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. It comes from Him and we get it. Ultimately, in and through Christ. So let's put all that together. Grace is God's unmerited, condescending, powerful, self-giving to men in the person and work of Jesus Christ to justify, sanctify, bless, build, strengthen, empower us for everything in the Christian life. Now how far is that from the typical view of grace which has God in the recliner saying, well, kids will be kids. Grace is God at work. The second word is peace. This will be a lot shorter. Peace typically is negative. It's the absence of war, the absence of strife, the absence of disorder and disarray. But when we come to the Scriptures, again, we're not talking about just a negation. We're talking about a positive thing. You picture a household where where mom and dad are always screaming at each other. Finally, at 10.30, mom stomps upstairs and slams the door. Dad stomps downstairs and slams the door. Disarray's gone, war's gone, strife's gone. Is that house at peace? No. There's no peace in that home. Peace is positive. It is harmony. It's unity. It's oneness. Yes, between men. But most importantly, it's peace with God. Harmony with God. 
solidarity with God, conformity to God in my thinking, in my feeling, in my actions, in all of life, I am conformed to God. That's peace. Now what's really interesting is here, and everywhere this phrase is used as a greeting, it's always in this order. It's always grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace or grace and mercy and peace. It's always in that order. Grace always produces peace. It's grace that leads to peace. So, grace to you and peace is a summary of the entirety of the work of redemption. It's the entirety of God's work in you. And in the believers, that's what grace and peace is. It's all of it. What, what, what's the Bible about? It's about grace and peace. And so before we get to prostitutes and dragons, before we get to God's perspective on the world, we need to understand God's perspective on His people. How does God view His people? Well, He views them through effectual applied grace, working in us to set us at peace Regardless of the outward circumstances, He will have His people at peace. And He's not going to stop until we are at peace. And if you're a believer and you're not at peace in your heart and your mind, it's not God's fault. That's our fault. We have to begin to understand this by considering the problem of sin. Because of Adam's federal headship, because he stood as our representative, when he sinned, we all fell with Him. We all were plummeted into sin. And we are sinners by nature. It's not our actions that constitute us sinful. It's our nature. It's a nature problem. As human beings, we are sinners. At the very moment when they can say, Oh, He's got a crown, a head full of hair. They could say, And He's got a heart full of sin. Because it's in our, it's our nature. We come out as sinners. And the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. What you've earned is death. That, that's a financial problem. You come out and by nature, we tally up the score, you've earned death. Because of that in your nature. And when the Bible talks about death, it's not just physical. It's not just, well, I guess this person's going to die someday. That's a fruit of the real problem, which is spiritual death. The, the Bible describes it as alienation from God. Cut off from the life of God. God is life. In Him there is life. But by nature we are cut off, severed from God, rebels toward God, at odds with God. In other words, no peace, enmity, strife, and war. As I told my children last night, if we could empty hell and bring all of the people in hell out and reveal to them God and say, would you like to come to Him now? They would say, I'll go back to hell before I bow to that God. Because they're at enmity with Him. And that's all of us by nature. We are rebels to God. And here's the great biblical promise. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, I will be their God. And they will be my people. I will dwell in the midst of this people. I will have them. And so we ask, okay, then how can that be? If there is this enmity, if there is this strife, this great division, and God's going to bring us back to Him, there has to be peace. Peace has to be made. 
Now, another biblical term that's nearly synonymous with the idea of peace is that of reconciliation. Reconciliation also implies the negative. We were cut off and we're being reconciliated, brought back again to God and set at peace. Again, the great work of all of human history and all of redemption is God reconciling sinners to Himself. Sinners that have offended Him. Rebels to His throne. That's what God's doing. All of it. He's bringing us to peace. And there are two aspects to that peace. There's objective peace and there's subjective peace. Now this objective peace was secured by Christ. This is what we tend to describe when we are proclaiming the gospel to someone, is this objective peace. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. It's done. He reconciled us. Verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. It's done. Christ came. He made reconciliation. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came in the flesh. He took our sins upon his, Himself in His own body. He bore them to the cross. The Father emptied His wrath out on His Son and voila, God satisfied. That's all that was required to make peace. And so in that sense, the work of peace is finished. In Christ, there is perfect harmony between God and those who believe. It's settled. But that's not the end of God's work. And we know that that can't be the end of God's work because we know that there are still things in us, there's th there are things in me that are not at harmony with God. Every one of us have the remnant of remaining sin in our members which practically cannot be reconciled with God. God doesn't take out our sin, wash it up in the heavenly dishwasher, and then put those things back in. It's got to be done away with. It's got to be mortified and put to death. It must be destroyed. And so this is where we talk about subjective peace. Subjective reconciliation where the work of Christ is applied to the saints over time and worked out in our experience. Your mind is not totally eradicated of all of its sinful thoughts. As much as we would like to let everybody around us believe it is, it's not. Your mind is not emptied of all of its sinful desires, all of its selfish aspirations. Oh, well, I want to do this. Why? Well, just, that's just what I want to do. Well, that's sinful. If you've been bought by Christ, you don't get to do what you want to do anymore. You're a slave. But our, we still have this in us, this urge to, to do our own thing. Your heart still harbors sinful affections. In every one of our hearts, there, is, there are seeds of bitterness just waiting for a drop. Just, just look at me wrong. Just say the wrong thing. Just... Don't say anything when you should have said something to me. And as soon as you do that, that is water on that drop and the roots of bitterness will begin to grow in all of our hearts. We have that. There are things in your lifestyle, believe it or not, saints, things in your lifestyle, outward things that you do in your life that are not holy. And you know that because you know that when you get to glory, God's going to have to wipe all that, get rid of all that stuff. 
because it's not holy. Now, objectively, your peace with God is not altered by that reality, by these sinful sediments that remain. But subjectively, if you're a Christian, you ought to be able to feel that in you something is at odds with God. You don't, and you don't like it. It's not comfortable. It doesn't harmonize with the God you love and the God you want to serve. And when you begin to feel that, that's called anxiety. That's something in me is at odds with something in him. And here I am just trying to live out that thing in me that's at odds with him. And it will not work. You feel unsettled, you're fearful, you're worrisome, you're anxious, either because you've decided you're not going to do it God's way, or you are doing it God's way, but you're not fully convinced that God's way is best. And all, all men can feel this to an extent. Even unregenerate men, that's what they're feeling. When they have anxiety, when they're popping pills to calm down, what they're feeling is something in them and in their living that is at odds with their Creator. It's at odds, and they can't deal with it, and they won't come to Christ to satisfy it, and so they, they just you know, fill up their, their minds with other things. If you're a Christian, and if you're going to dwell with God forever, then the things that don't harmonize with God have to be done away with, and they have to be replaced with new thoughts, new affections, new actions, which are at perfect harmony with God, which are at peace with God. And thankfully, that work is actually guaranteed in the New Covenant. The, there's a guarantee that God, by the Holy Spirit, will produce this subjective peace. We typically call that process sanctification. And in sanctification, the Holy Spirit of God works in the Christian to eradicate all of the things that are at odds with the nature of God and put in all of the things that are in perfect harmony with God. And so the Holy Spirit is transforming your mind. As you study the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit transforms your mind so that you actually begin to think God's thoughts after Him. The Holy Spirit changes your heart so that you love what God loves and you hate the things God hates. He works holiness in you practically so that you live like Christ. If Christ were on the earth right now, you're living like He would live. The Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see things the way God sees them. All of the things on the horizon, the things that you know, everybody in the world is worried about and stressed about, you can see them. You just see them the way God sees them, not the way they see them. And over time, the true Christian is going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, slowly but surely becoming more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Slowly but surely having their entire self brought into harmony with God. Now that's not, not the pagan nirvana idea where we're absorbed into the deity. But we as separate individuals with body and soul will eventually be brought into what Paul calls in step with the Spirit. Or we're walking and our footsteps are right where the Spirit's foot, footsteps would be. We're walking in step with Him. Now here's a test to see who's paying attention. What do we call it when God comes down to personally work in us, doing in us that which we have not earned and cannot, have not deserved? Grace. That's called grace. The grace of God is the Spirit of God working in us. It's not license. Grace doesn't say, well, I've got all these things that are, at harmon that are not at harmony with God, but, well, it's okay because there's grace. That's not grace. No. 
It's not this worldly concept of liberty. Well, I can do what I want to because, well, you know, there's grace. A lot of times evangelicals act like Roman Catholics. We think that there's a, a treasury of grace somewhere. And we just live however we want to and God will dump that on us in glory and we'll, we'll live happily ever after. But that's not grace. Grace is not God lowering His standards. The people who know the most of the grace of God are going to be the most holy people you've ever met. Because that's what grace produces. Grace is God in us bringing us to a state of peace with Him in every aspect of our being. It was out of free grace that God reconciled us to Himself objectively. It is out of free grace that the Spirit continues to work this out in us. And only in glory will we be finally fully at peace with God. We will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. We'll see the way He sees. That's biblical peace and it comes through grace. So grace to you in peace is a summary of the entirety of the work of redemption in you. It's God taking sinners alienated from Himself, reconciling them to Himself by the work of Christ, and then working in them by the Spirit to set them at peace. And when you're walking in harmony with God or peace with God in step with the Holy Spirit, you will be at peace in the world. Not with the world. In the world. All the world can be at war. And you can have true peace. Only the Christian can have that. You see, that's, that's only ours. And the world is in disorder and disarray. And they can make peace treaties and they can say, finally, we, we won't blow each other up. And we call that a peace treaty. They've decided not to kill each other. But the Christian can sit and say, my king is on his throne. I see it the way God sees it. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's peace. John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I can live at peace. Why? My Savior has overcome the world. So the peace of God, the peace of Christ is not just the absence of external strife. It's harmony with God in the soul even when there is external strife, even when there is tribulation, I am at peace with these things because I'm at peace this way. And I'm seeing, living and walking as God would have me to see and live and walk. And again, much of your struggle, your anxiety, your stress, your worry as a Christian is because you have not made adequate use of the means of grace which God has given to bring you to peace. I've told you before the application every week is read your Bible and pray. That's this. Here's what we do. We reject a believing, devotional, meditational, devouring of the Word of God. We set aside real, believing, communal, prayerful praying. We come to church around fellow believers, and it's all superficial. All, we, everybody leaves thinking everybody else is perfect because it's all superficial. Corporate worship is just a time to come in, get it done, and leave. You come to church to go home, you know. The sacraments are done almost like rote rituals. Just get it done and, and move on. And then we walk out the door, continue doing all of life our way, and we wonder why everything is so difficult. 
And again, like I, I, the illustration I used last week, we beat our heads against the wall when God's saying, my word said if you would take two, two steps to the right, you would walk straight through. But we beat our heads against the wall and our world says, well, that's just life. Everybody's stressed out. Just take some drugs. Just, just soothe that. Do, do, then offers all of these things that are meant to calm down the stress when God has said, no, I've already provided the grace. So the application is make consistent use of the means of grace that God has given to bring us to peace. Or read your Bible and pray. If you're not a Christian, God in grace extends His hands of mercy to sinners. Preaching, the preaching of the Word of God is a means of grace that Christ has instituted to draw sinners to Himself to beckon sinners. There will be no peace in this life or in the next apart from taking hold of Christ by faith. If you're not a Christian, that's the grace. God is saying, you come. I've given my son, you come, you take him, there's peace. You don't take him, no peace. That's grace. A lot of people don't like that. They say, well, that's not very gracious of God. That He's provided everything? That He's clearly laid out His Son in full view for the world to see? And you say, I don't want that way. And that's not gracious somehow. If you're not a Christian, make a faithful use of the means of grace. Say, I've heard Christ. I've heard of Christ. I will come to this Christ. Now, if you are a Christian... That objective piece is settled, and so now we begin to make use of the means of grace to achieve subjective peace. If you're a Christian, you're not content with just the objective. You're not content to say, well, Jesus died for my sins, and I live however I want to, and life is awful, but that's just how it's supposed to be. You're not content with that. You desire the subjective peace. You want to be brought in harmony with God. So here's six steps to apply this as a believer, applying the means of grace to achieve peace. Number one, identify that thing in your life that is causing the disharmony. That stressful thing, that person, that situation, that schedule, whatever it is. You, you know what it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's uh, occupational, situational, financial, whatever those words were. It's one of those. You know what it is. And a lot of times you see it, you approach it, and you take it, and you embrace it like, well, this is just how life is. Identify it. Very often these things are places of decision, places where there's options, where the stress comes from, what do I do? And uh, did I do the right thing? Or did I do the wrong thing? Am I doing the right thing the right way? Well, I feel like I did the right thing, but... It didn't turn out the way I thought it should. And so that, that just rolling around in our heads. Places of decision and options where we have to make choices. Now in John's day there were imperial cults. The Roman Caesars demanded to be worshipped as gods. Ethnic Jews, who we call the Judaizing cults, pressuring the Christians to come back to the, the law of Moses. There were trade guilds that were sort of like labor unions where if you really wanted to get in and have a successful business, you had to pinch a little incense to the Caesar. So think about their issues, their, their pressures. Do I burn incense to the Caesar or do I die? Do I return to Judaism or do I continue to be cast out for my family, perhaps ratted out to the Romans. 
Do I join in the idolatry, give my hearty approval to the idolatry, or do I find another way for my family to get food? Now, those make our problems look pretty silly. We think that's easy. Oh, I, I would never pinch incense to Caesar. Oh, I would never go back to Judaism. I would never join in the idolatry. And yet, how much do we struggle with things that are so much easier? The, the, the things that I listed at the beginning, those, those stresses we have, those are nothing compared to what the Christians were facing in John's day and Christians have faced throughout history. But for you, it might be addressing the hard issues of the gospel with someone, knowing that if you bring it up, the relationship might end. And you've got to pick, do I stay faithful to the gospel or do I stay quiet and keep the peace while souls plummet to hell? Perhaps your spouse is treading down a dangerous path. You can address it in love or remain quiet and keep the peace and watch them destroy themselves. You can give yourself to a career early in life so that your family can have all of the things that the world says they need in order to be happy. Or you can give yourself to your family so that your children and your spouse gets to see what a, a Christian looks like. So that your children can see what a godly father looks like, what a godly mother looks like. These are the issues that we struggle with. You can take the dream job that you love, which makes you happy, which affords all of the comforts of life, but you're probably going to have to work on the Lord's Day Sabbath. Or you can find a common labor job, work Monday through Friday. It's going to require you to sacrifice. It's going to require you to tighten up the straps of your budget, but it's not going to rob God of that day He's already set aside as His. These are the types of things that plague our minds if we are concerned with godliness at all. If you're a Christian, you've wrestled with this type of thing. Now, there are those who are content to live exactly like the world around them, keep their Christianity in their hearts, maintain the peace, and you'll never struggle with these issues. You can burn incense Monday through Friday to Caesar, give God a hat tip on Sunday if you're not busy, and you'll coast through life. It'll be easy. Everything I described at the beginning, you're like, I've never worried about any of that stuff. That's never been an issue for me. Now, hopefully, if you're around Christians, at some point you're going to scratch your head and begin to wonder, why is my life and my experience so much different than that of all of the Christians throughout history? A Christian's going to be wrestling with these things. And very often, we resort to stress and anxiety when God has called us to peace. So identify the area, whatever it is. Find it. Number two, bring that to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, prayer is a means of grace. Humble yourself. Bring the issue to the Lord. Lord, I've got a problem here. I can't fix it. Here it is. Lay it out before the Lord. Number three, search God's Word on that issue. Again, God's Word is a means of grace. So bring that to the Word. His Word contains all that we need to achieve godliness with contentment. Now, if you're not a Christian, you've never wondered why Paul would even urge such a thing. Godliness with contentment. Well, I'm perfectly content. You're not godly, 
but you're content. But for the Christian, the Christian aspires to godliness and realizes that godliness with contentment is a hard thing. That's something we've got to work at. It's all found in the Scriptures. God has not left us without a witness as to how these things ought to be worked out. So bring it to the Word. But you're not allowed to bring any cultural presuppositions with you with regard to that issue. You're not allowed to interject your opinions. You're not allowed to say, God, I'm going to read your word, but don't forget my mom and dad did it this way. You have to come not as a judge over the word, but as a student. You come to the word in absolute self-denial saying, God, whatever your word says, I will do it. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of what anybody says, I'm willing to do what you say. If you come, that, that's what I mean by a believing, faithful devotion to the Word of God. Don't get online and find out what John MacArthur and John Piper think about the issue. Open God's Word. You can find anybody online to agree with any position on anything in life. It's all there. Anybody. On any issue. We were just talking about churches bringing in uh, homosexual clergy, sodomite clergy. You know... What, do you, what does the Bible say about sodomite clergy? Okay, all of a sudden, hey, look, all of these people agree that it's perfectly fine. What does God's Word say? Don't run to God's Word first. Search the Scriptures on the issue. Number four, acknowledge your disparity with God's Word. Bring this thing to God and acknowledge in your heart, in your mind, maybe verbally, maybe even write it out, God, the way I was thinking was wrong. I was wrong. I did it wrong. Father, I did not ask for your opinion when I started living this way, when I started doing this. Father, I sought somebody else's advice. I didn't listen to your advice. I didn't come to you. Father, I simply went with the crowd. I didn't, I didn't know any better. I did what everybody else was doing. Whatever the reason might be, if there's anxiety, if there's stress, it's because you have not had God's mind and God's will on the subject, you ran ahead, you acted on your own, and when you come to the Word, you're going to realize, and even before you get to the Word, you're going to realize it's not working. This ain't working. In other words, you've got to confess your sins. God, I sinned. I walked alone. And then fifthly, pray for grace to change. Pray for the Spirit's power to affect the change. You've got to have help. You can't do it on your own. You've got to have the Spirit. Grace has to be given. And grace is God powerfully working in you. You can make external changes very easily, but you can't change your heart and your mind. You must have grace. Pray, God, I have sinned. I have walked contrary to your word. Now give me the grace. Because as soon as you begin to confess those things to the Lord, your mind is going to fill up with, well, this person is going to say this, and this person is going to say this, and how are you going to do this, and your schedule is really going to have to change because of this, and your mind will fill up with every reason why you ought not to do what God's Word says you ought to do, and you're going to need grace. And then number six, act. Make a resolution, write it down. Step number one, here's what I'm going to do to address this issue and actually, literally begin to walk in the path of godliness. You've got to do something. You can't just sit and say, well, God, I really hope you change me. You've got to live differently by the grace of God. Now, we get insert into there wise counsel from fellow believers that you know who can keep you accountable, who can pray for you. That is also a means of grace. Here's the catch. Will life 
then get easier. That's what we want to know. Everything's going to get easy after that point, right? No. It didn't get easier for Christ. It didn't get easier for the apostles. It didn't get easier for these seven churches. Life's not going to get easier. But you're going to be at peace with whatever the outcome is because you're at peace with God. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. How simple is that? Read your Bible and pray. Now, Paul has written to Timothy, and he said, I desire that in every place the men should pray. So now we're going to go into a time of prayer.